Well, welcome to this Department of Government event, which we're calling a public conversation. I'm Simon Hicks. I'm the head of the Department of Government here. And it's with great pleasure that I um, introduce the discussants and speakers this evening. So chairing the event, we have Professor John Gray, who is an emeritus professor of our department and a very prolific author, who I'm sure a lot of you have already read. And he will be chairing a discussion and participating in the discussion between Nicholas Berggren and Nathan Gardells. Nicholas is the founder and president of Berggren Holdings and the Berggren Institute. Nathan is a senior advisor at the Berggren Institute and editor of New Perspectives Quarterly. They are both co-authors of a new book, Intelligent Governance for the 21st Century, which is a very interesting project. Um, and also, I'm just hearing, has been translated into Spanish. Is that correct? and they were just launching it in Spain. Um, and here they are this evening to discuss um, this book and what they hope to achieve with this book. So we'd like to welcome them here tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon. It's a great pleasure for me to be here at the LSE. And what we plan to do tonight is to have a conversation initially between um, the three of us here on the stage and then involving you about intelligent governance in the 21st century. Um, the institute and work that um, Nicholas Bergruen animates, has initiated and animated is really concerned to look at the inadequacy of existing models of government and governance in the West and in other parts of the world, such as China, against the background of the fact that in the West uh, and elsewhere, uh, governments and for governmental institutions and institutions more generally um, seem um, systemically incapable of addressing some long-term questions. And I guess the geopolitical or historical background to this is that the idea that Western institutions of democracy in their present forms can address these uh, long-term issues, uh, issues of uh, expenditure, of uh, environmental protection, uh, of employment, of and many other such issues. The idea has sort of taken a knock in recent years, uh, um, partly as a result of the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, and continuing and partly also as a result of gridlock, political gridlock in a number of important uh, Western states, particularly um, uh, the USA, over crucial issues, especially to do with um, fiscal deficits. And so part of the work that they do, which is not only theoretical, but also practical, because um, Nicholas Bergruns and Nathan Godell's have been active in uh, trying to uh, develop longer-term uh, initiatives in California and elsewhere, practical work as well as uh, purely theoretical inquiry, um, in order to see really how the different merits or virtues or advantages of different systems can be perhaps um, shown to be complementary in some ways or to put it in a different way, what we can each learn from one another. The idea that there is a single model from which the whole of the rest of the world can learn, that the whole of the rest of the world can advance 
or even remain even be sustainable by simply replicating a model doesn't seem all that um, realistic anymore. So what I'm going to do is um, hand over to um, Nicholas, who will say a few words, and then Nathan uh, Gardells, with whom the book tonight, which um, can be purchased later on, I should say, uh, uh, um, here this evening, uh, co-author of that book, will set out the uh, broad ideas of the book um, and some of their practical um, uh, implications. But at this point, I'll just ask um, Nicholas to say a few words. I should say that Nicholas has come down with a minor illness recently, so he's mentioned to me that he might not talk for very long, but we'd still like to um, uh, hear from him as to uh, how he conceives his work and what the, the book's place in it. Thank you. Or you can sit there if you prefer. Uh, well, uh, first of all, John, thank you. And uh, I'm honored to be uh, in, well, at the LSE and at the front of all of you. Um, and I have to apologize in advance. Um, uh, Nathan Gardels and I wrote this book. We started the institute together. And we are, we, we, in many of our thinking, we are somewhat alike. But luckily, physically, uh, great differences. Nathan won't eat fish, and I won't eat um, uh, meat. And I ate fish last night, food poisoning. So uh, <laughs> I'm highly diminished. So apologies. Um, the, this project started really out of um, a think tank, which Nathan and I, and actually uh, three professors, um, uh, from uh, UCLA and USC um, uh, started really thinking about uh, modes of governance in different areas around the world, um, in different models of governance. The thinking very simply being that, um, well, uh, that's probably the biggest determinant in our lives besides where we were born and our cultural environment is governance. So let's focus on uh, what makes certain systems better or worse um, and that uh, work has then resulted in the creation of the book, uh, which is now out as of this week, um, and, um, and uh, also uh, the action part of the think tank. And um, just to give you a little bit of background in terms of our thinking, as John mentioned, our feeling is that you've had... Um, systems of governance, let's say in the West, to put it simply, and we've on purpose in the book sort of taken two bookends, uh, US and China, as extremes. Um, uh, you've got certain uh, uh, very, um, uh, well, tenets of uh, democracy, of Western governance, which uh, have been extraordinary in terms of creating uh, and, you know, the the over the last 200 years, the world we live in, uh, a world in the West which, you know, we think is accountable, uh, where individuals are respected, uh, where there's transparency, uh, where there is balance of, uh, of power, um, and uh, most importantly, uh, a vote to every citizen so that uh, their future is um, determined. Um, we are beginning to wonder if in uh, some countries... Uh, in some systems, uh, as opposed to the um, political fights, 
being helpful to making changes, to progressing things, and to addressing um, uh, the reforms that are needed, uh, the, the, the opposite is almost happening. Uh, Frank Fukuyama calls this uh, uh, sort of a vetocracy, where you have vetoes, one side vetoes the other, and we've seen this in some of the work we've done. So we look at the West as a place that reforms less easily than maybe uh, the intention was, and with time, it seems with, you know, with reforms needed but vested interest uh, not wanting to give up certain things, um, uh, it's harder and harder for democracies to self-correct. We then look at other models which uh, promote, um, uh, let's say, community, long-term thinking, uh, next generations, um, and also promote uh, the idea of, so, you know, institutions having... Uh, certain capabilities, meaning uh, uh, being uh, uh, run at the end by a group of people who, in this case, aren't elected, but really are uh, chosen because uh, they've fought it out within a, uh, uh, an organization or system, and they um, have proven that they can run things. So we argue for the, the advantages that exist in, on, on both sides of um, uh, this balance or imbalance. Um, that's the basis of where we started in terms of the book uh, and some of our thinking. Um, in terms of the action-related uh, uh, things, uh, real-world-related um, uh, activities of the um, Institute, uh, we have... Uh, uh, an engagement in the real world in three different ways. We've created a um, bipartisan group to uh, foster reforms in California. And um, California, and there we'll let Nathan describe the whole thing, is a, is a wonderful place. It has extraordinary strengths, but today also an inability, it seems, to invest really long term. Uh, and it has an inability to address some of the issues to finance uh, the intellectual uh, infrastructure and uh, physical infrastructure of what made these states so successful. It has very high unemployment and large deficits. So we've been, but it has something interesting, which is the um, uh, referendum process. So you can actually reform uh, California in a super democratic way. But that's also one of the reasons why California uh, hasn't, um, uh, let's say, uh, worked in a, in a harmonious way in terms of progressing some of the big issues that uh, face it. So we've got a California uh, effort, we've got a Europe effort, which we think is almost the opposite, where you have maybe too little democracy in trying to uh, build um, in what uh, is the European dream, uh, uh, because the, the political construction is sort of half way there. It has a currency, it doesn't have a fiscal center, it doesn't have a few other things, but you can't give up sovereignty without involving citizens. And so far, that's really been the case. So we have a, um, a, um, a second effort, which is Europe-centered. Uh, and the third one uh, is um, uh, really more global uh, and uh, addresses some of the issues that the G20 uh, meets about every year. And there, again, the G20 is a great idea, convenes you know, the, the heads now of the old world order and the new world order, 
in one place every year, but you have a roving presidency, which uh, makes it, uh, um, let's say, not that effective, and it has no institutional memory uh, in terms of the G20, uh, whatever is declared. Uh, there is no real need to, uh, to follow through, um, and in addition, it's uh, the work of 20 who have to agree on everything before something is um, um, uh, given out. So the combination of all this, we've, we think, makes the G20 not that effective, and we've been working directly uh, with the different heads of the G20, uh, this roving presidency, to, um, to, make, um, uh, to make contributions and to make the G20, in essence, if we can, more effective. Um, so, um, sorry, as I said, I'm not at, at uh, uh, my best today, but I wanted to um, make more than make the effort, and I want to thank you very much for, for being here. But I'll let uh, Nathan uh, describe things uh, in, in much more depth. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, thank you, Nicholas. Uh, I have to thank Nicholas in a, in a broader sense uh, for taking the uh, time and the resources and the energy uh, and the vision to put these uh, large projects together. Uh, he's very modest for a homeless billionaire is his nickname. Uh, last week we had a meeting in uh, a town hall meeting in Berlin to discuss all the tough issues of Europe uh, from banking union to the future of the political union. Uh, with participants from uh, Wolfgang Schauble and uh, Pierre Moscovici, the finance minister of France, to uh, Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey, to Helmut Schmidt, uh, to Eric Schmidt from Google, all discussing uh, where's Europe going, where's innovation going in the economy, where's it not going, uh, how do you get the political union, what's the narrative, what's the vision. Uh, and Nicholas uh, would pull all this together, and I think it had a, a big effect moving the needle with German public opinion. So, Nicholas, thank you for your, your vision and your energy in doing this. And thank you, Professor Gray, for uh, chairing today. Professor Gray is part of our G20 group, and Nicholas described. We can talk more about the European thing later if you want, or our projects. Uh, John Gray is part of our uh, G20 group and has participated in our meetings in both Mexico City and in Paris. And... Um, I would highly recommend, although this discussion is about our book, I would highly recommend uh, John's most recent book, I think it's your most recent one, The Immortalization Commission, which is a fascinating, offbeat uh, look at things. It's a very, very interesting book. Let me uh, lay out the themes of the book since uh, it's just published today here in English. We have a German edition coming out later. The Spanish one was mentioned. But since you haven't read the book, let me try to frame the main themes of it so that we can have a little discussion. <clears throat> All governing systems today from Singapore to China to the U.S. to Europe are experiencing disequilibrium because of the combined impact of globalization and the spread of technology. In the book, we argue that we are in the midst of a great transition from American-led globalization, which we call Globalization 1.0, to Globalization 2.0 due to the impact of the emerging economies uh, on the global order, the rise of the rest. Thanks to the convergence of patterns of growth and the spread of technology, these emerging economies from China to Turkey to Brazil are leveling the playing field and reinventing the world order. However, far from becoming a flat world, as everyone here knows was a, a title of Tom Friedman's book, 
Economic strength engenders cultural and political self-assertion. Witness the Neo-Confucian uh, 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 caste of China, the Islamic caste of Turkey, the two fastest growing economies in the world. So the new economic uh, convergence entails at the same time a divergence uh, because of cultural and political uh, self-assertion. Globalization 2.0, above all, is an interdependence of plural identities. As diversity grows among cultures and nations, it is also growing within societies because of the demassification of industrial society, the destandardization of society, the proliferation of tribes, digital tribes, niches, and identities that result from the information technologies and social media in particular. Greater diversity, along with cultural and political awakening, is part and parcel of this transition. We see it everywhere, from Tahrir Square to the Indignados in Spain to Catalonia um, to uh, the Occupy movements in the United States, to the Tea Party movements. People everywhere are demanding meaningful participation in the way their lives are governed. These two phenomena present a double challenge to governance. To accommodate the demand for participation, power must be devolved downward toward the grassroots. At the same time, greater consensus-building institutional capacity of the kind associated with political meritocracies, and we just can discuss what that means, I'll talk about it a bit, in China or Singapore, for example, those kind of places, greater institutional capacity to capably manage the systemic links of interdependence and greater complexity of diversity is also required. The failure to find an institutional response to this double challenge will result in a crisis of legitimacy for any governing system, either because of the failure to produce inclusive growth and employment or because of the democratic deficit that shuts out diverse voices uh, and undermining, therefore, effective consent. So the title of our book, Intelligent Governance, comes down to three things, devolve, involve, and decision division. This is the way we see of putting together a, a, a system of governance, uh, an ideal system, system of governance that, met, that balances knowledgeable democracy with accountable meritocracy. What we do in the book then is engage in an act of political imagination uh, in designing a template uh, for such a system. Uh, obviously not one size fits all, but it's kind of a template as a reference point uh, to figure out uh, how it might be adapted in different societies. And of course, it means different things for different uh, places because equilibrium and disequilibrium is at different stages. So for example, as Nicholas mentioned, uh, in the United States and particularly in California, uh, we need more consensus building institutions and probably less uh, direct democracy. In China, obviously, more accountability, more transparency, more rule of law. The European level, the European Commission is a kind of a quasi-meritocratic institution, but as everyone here knows, it lacks democratic legitimacy. So uh, you'll have different responses to uh, different challenges uh, to uh, reduce the disequilibrium that exists in the various places. Now in the book, we focus on the US and China as the core systems of the global order, not as literal alternatives, of course, but as a metaphor to help identify the trade-offs between uh, the popular sovereignty of democracy and the long-term horizon of meritocratic uh, elites in designing good governance. How these two societies, China and the United States, we could talk about many models in many societies, but how these two societies govern themselves will impact the way the world order is shaped as we go forward. Now China continues to adhere to the centuries-long attributes of its institutional civilization, rooted in rule by experience, 
expertise, and tested elites. True to its no-party Confucian roots, China today operates under a one-party system in which consensus is reached through internal competition based on performance instead of external competition where the body politic is mobilized against itself. Once consensus is reached, this enables a greater unity of purpose and the effective long-term implementation of policies. The U.S., of course, is the largest and most dynamic example of one-person, one-vote electoral democracy. Within the U.S., we focus on California, since it carries the idea of one-person, one-vote democracy the furthest with our direct democracy initiative uh, process, where voters can make laws and change the Constitution directly. As is often the case, the extreme reveals the essence. California most exposes the problems with democracy taken to the extreme. And, of course, it's a bellwether for where the rest of the United States goes. And as we argue in the book, because of this, this awakening and political awakening and pressure for uh, participation, direct democracy is something many people are uh, thinking about in the rest of the world. In fact, in Berlin, um, Martin Schulz, the president of the European Parliament, is recommending an initiative system for Europe. Now, all democracies, of course, have different institutional structures, and I'm not going to dwell on this. We can talk about it in discussion if people want. You have the Westminster system, uh, the ideal Westminster system, which uh, tends to be more consensus building than the U.S. system, which is adversarial, two-party adversarial, and therefore uh, the cabinet and the prime minister can almost dictate a budget, which doesn't happen in the United States. And, of course, you have uh, systems like Germany or the Scandinavian countries that are more corporatist, where labor and capital or labor and the corporate leaders sit on the same boards. Uh, they're, lar- they're organized in large uh, bargaining units, so it's easier to reach consensus and implement policies. But I'm going to leave that aside for the minute. We, we can come back to that. Obviously, on the China side, too, on the, on the meritocratic side of governance, you have Singapore or Hong Kong, which have aspects of democracy, but also aspects of what you see in China. Now, when Nicholas and I started our conversations that led to this book, um, I recalled that uh, 35 years ago, California Governor Jerry Brown, who's the governor today, but was the governor uh, also 35 years ago. You you all are too young to remember that, at least most of you are. Uh, Jerry and I, Governor Jerry Brown and I, visited uh, China. Those days, it was just after the Cultural Revolution. China could barely feed itself. The Three Gorges Dam, the ground was just being broken. Uh, people rode bicycles everywhere in Shanghai and Beijing. Shenzhen, uh, now the uh, Pearl River Delta, now the factory of the world, was only a village. Everyone knows what's happened in those 35 years. 400 million people have risen from poverty. High-speed rail networks connect megacities with state-of-the-art subways underneath. Shanghai schools test as the best globally. China's the second largest economy in the world. In those same 35 years, California, that we all once dreamed of as a society, uh, building a society that would match the magnificence of its landscape, uh, has ended up with mountains of debt, D-plus schools, spending more on prisons and higher education, and an infrastructure that China and other emerging economies put to shame. How did this happen? Now, of course, China is a developing country The United States is an advanced economy, particularly California. But despite China's well-known problems, the sensational exposure of which we are all witness these days, Bojilai and the rest, we can talk about that. Corruption, 
vast inequality, incomplete rule of law, lack of political freedom, all those problems are there. But at the heart of China's success is this modern meritocratic, mostly meritocratic, mandarinate um, with its able to operate with this unity of purpose and long-term implementation of, poverty, of policies that has uh, enabled the most impressive poverty alleviation in history. It was equally clear during that period in California, despite being the birthplace of Apple, Google, Facebook, and the rest, our public space has deteriorated because democracy had become dysfunctional, captured by a short-term special interest political culture. Now, the conventional observation in the book, which I think most people accept, even, even many uh, in China, of course, is that China's system is not self-correcting without reforms, rule of law, more democratic accountability, more feedback mechanisms. Uh, it'll decay into, uh, like all, as a red dynasty, like all previous dynasties, without some reform. The unconventional observation in our book, as Nicholas alluded to, is that democracy as its practice in the United States in particular may be no more self-correcting than financial markets. Despite one person, one vote elections, and we can talk about today's election if people want, without reforms that introduce or strengthen consensus-building institutions with a long-term horizon that check and balance a short-term political culture, uh, American democracy is also headed into decay as a political system. In short, China needs to lighten up. The United States needs to tighten up. Now, let me just say, uh, talk about three reasons about uh, democracy's um, difficulty or the challenge of self-correcting. And we see this again, especially in California. First, we are no longer an industrial democracy, but a consumer democracy. In a democracy, people get what they want. In a consumer democracy, people get what they want, when they want it, which is now. All feedback signals in a consumer democracy, markets, politics, media, steer behavior towards immediate gratification. We live in a kind of a Diet Coke culture, where just as we want sweetness without calories, we want consumption without savings, infrastructure and education without taxes. <clears throat> the same California voter who doesn't want to pay another $50 for their vehicle license fee, which funds police and fire, will spend three or $500 on the latest iPhone. The driving ethos of consumer democracy invites populism that can't be paid for. It's easy to see from this dynamic uh, how the self-interest of immediate gratification results in exuberant bubbles, mountains of debt, and fiscal crisis. To go against the grain in a democracy requires extraordinary leadership and comes at a high political price because good policy is bad politics. Gerhard Schroeder, we, uh, we were with again last week in Berlin. Gerhard Schroeder's Agenda 21, uh, 2010 reforms are a good example of his problem. As Schroeder himself often says in frustration, the result of structural reforms, the kind that are being discussed now or are being implemented to some extent in Italy, some extent in Spain, are now on the agenda in France. These structural reforms, labor flexibility, pensions, welfare, investment in R&D, can take a decade to reveal their impact. But elections take place immediately, and reform measures are always unpopular. So the German public removed Schroeder from office, and now, 12 years later, the measures he's introduced have made Germany the most competitive economy in Europe and uh, in some, in some uh, cases the world. 
Just as financial markets mispriced the bonds of Greece, Italy, and Spain over the past several years based on German economic strength, so too democracy mispriced the value of Schroeder's reforms. Second point, deliberative institutions that enlarge the public view have withered and been overtaken by partisan rancor and the narrow short-term horizon of the voting public. The resulting gridlock and inability to find consensus has paralyzed governance. We already see halting efforts to respond to this with meritocratic type solutions. In the US last year, or in, in last year or a little more, there was a proposal of a super committee because the normal US Congress could not come to agreement, raise taxes, how much government we want, how much government don't we want, how do we reduce this deficit, cuts, revenues, whatever. A super committee was set up to get the wisest and smartest and most consensus-minded uh, legislators to try to come to agreement. They couldn't. Uh, even though we've just had a huge election, uh, Obama won, the country's divided, we're facing a fiscal cliff, the disconsensus remains today just like it did yesterday. <clears throat> so there needs to be a solution and people are looking again to a super committee type of project. In Italy, we see Mario Monti a technocratic government, unelected, appointed by the president, because politics as usual couldn't get where Italy needed to go. So there's a growing recognition that when deliberative bodies and democracies wither, inclusive politics dies, and the seeming rationality of short-term fixes at the ballot box can result in wholesale problems of irrational exuberance, mounting debt, and fiscal crisis. In California, we ended up with the unintended consequence, as I mentioned, of spending more on prisons than higher education after a series of initiatives that on their own made a whole lot of sense. Cut taxes on pro uh, property taxes because an old lady living in her house can't afford it, even though she owns the house. That made total sense, but it destroyed the, pro the tax base. Or get tough on crime. So what you have now is uh, uh, the ungovernability of a system in which undeliberated democracy through the initiative process has created a system in which revenues are locked out, uh, spending is locked out, and revenues are locked in. The, the prototypical example of this unintended consequence problem, it was an initiative called Three Strikes, You're Out. If you're, the law says if a, if a, a felon commits a third crime, uh, even if it's not a serious felony, they go to jail automatically for 25 years. It made total sense in the ballot box. People wanted to be safe. But the same public didn't vote anything to build new prisons. So after uh, a decade, the US Supreme Court has ruled uh, last year that California is violating the human rights of prisoners because of overcrowding and has to release 36,000 felons. Now, this kind of unintended consequence is not surprising, given the uh, I guess you call it the system of direct, direct democracy initiatives that we have. There was a poll two weeks ago uh, in California because we just had an election uh, yesterday and uh, some budget issues and tax issues and so on. So the question was, do you want your elected officials, the governor and legislature, to make the tough decisions on the budget? And only 10% said they wanted the governor and legislature to make the decisions. 80% said they wanted to make the decisions. The next question was, What's the greatest source of revenue coming into the state, and what's the greatest expenditure? And the same 80% didn't know. The answer is the most money spent is on K-12 education, and most uh, uh, revenue comes from income tax. <clears throat> now, 
Also, as California's former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who's on our California committee, also points out, instead of being a recourse of the public as the initiative process initially was, it was put in place in 1914, uh, copying Switzerland, in order to have recourse against the uh, landlords, uh, the, the ranchers, and railroad barons that ran the state in, in the early 20th century. Instead of being a recourse of the public, initiatives tend to become a tool of the very special interest they were intended to curb. The average citizen simply lacks the many millions required to pay for statewide signature campaigns that can uh, usually cost about $3 million, no less the media campaign uh, to, uh, to uh, make your case to the public and hire the persuasion industry to make the case. So you have all kinds of special interests disguised in other ways, like uh, we had an initiative uh, last year on uh, trying to roll back uh, our global warming legislation. And it was four oil companies, three of them from Texas, that said the issue was all about jobs. This will take your jobs away. It wasn't at all about the subject, green energy, and many millions were spent. This year, the elections just ended uh, yesterday. There were 11 uh, initiatives on the ballot, and $350 million was spent uh, on those initiatives. <clears throat> now, uh, third, uh, third problem of uh, challenge of democracy <coughs> self-correcting. As Nicholas also mentioned, Francis Fukuyama has argued that democracy in the U.S., as well as in many other places, such as Italy, has mutated into a state of political decay he calls vetocracy, veto, like democracy, vetocracy. By this he means the general will and long-term fiscal health of the system has been subverted by the special interest lobbies and short-term mentality of ideologically rigid or narrowly self-interested constituencies. These organized groups, from teachers' unions to financial companies, have amassed the clout to veto whatever threatens their hold on government and its spoils. They accrete to the system like barnacles and anchor it to the past. The votes of the diaspora of organized, unorganized citizens are thus steeply discounted, if not basically meaningless. A vote for democracy in this decayed system is really a vote for the past because it's the vote for the vested interests of the present that over the years have staked their claims on the state. This is a system almost guaranteed to generate debts and deficits while blocking any change to the status quo. To conclude, we are not, of course, making the case that China is a better system uh, the, and, and China should adopt the U.S. system and the U.S. should adopt the uh, China system. Of course not. The U.S. is not about to become Confucian anymore and China is going to adapt anytime soon, at least, multi-party democracy. What we are doing again is using these two systems as bookends to identify the trade-offs involved in good government. Long-term horizon, knowledge-based, meritocratic governance, and popular sovereignty. In our view, the best system of governance would be a balance between the long-term horizon, knowledge-based, and consensus-forming attributes of meritocracy with the accountability of popular sovereignty. Further, we argue, despite uh, the rhetoric of the Tea Party in the United States, further we argue this combination of knowledgeable democracy and accountable meritocracy is not far from the vision of the American Founding Fathers who designed institutions to ward off both monarch and mob. Liberal constitutional democracy is not just about elections. When people, no matter what their competence, make decisions. It's much more than that. It's about an open society. It's about a free press. It's about uh, 
dignity of the individual, and it's about the deliberation of trade-offs in the common good. As in democracies, division of powers and accountability are key to good governance. So is knowledge-based policy, unity of purpose, and institutional capacity to implement long-term policies. As in meritocracies, the best system balances both. Every system needs circuit breakers to correct disequilibrium. Financial markets need them to correct exuberant bubbles and imbalances. Meritocracies and mandarinates need accountability. So too, one person, one vote democracies need nonpartisan, deliberative institutions with a long-term horizon rooted in popular sovereignty, but insulated in some cases from electoral politics. A final anecdote. Nicholas and I were, uh, John mentioned the Spanish edition. We were in Latin America last week talking about this book. And part of the meeting we were at was a homage to the great uh, Mexican novelist Carlos Fuentes, who died recently. I knew Carlos Fuentes for 25 years. For the first half of that time, all of our conversation on politics was about we need democracy in Mexico, we need to get rid of the rule of the one party, the institutional revolutionary party. For the second half of that time I knew Carlos, after democracy came to Mexico, when we talked politics, it was always about this government can't get anything done, the state produces weak leaders, Mexico's falling apart, it's chaos and it's anarchy. Once half jokingly, but only half jokingly, he said, we need a Lee Kuan Yew from Singapore to come get Mexico in shape. Now, of course, no one, including Carlos, was not inviting Lee Kuan Yew to come and organize Mexico. But the point he was pointing to is something that we try to, uh, uh, to focus on in the book. Democracy by its nature generates contention, disconsensus, and diversity. The challenge is to be able to govern it. And our book tries to address the many dimensions of that, only a few of which I've touched on today. So thank you very much. Okay. <clears throat> thank you very much, Nathan, for a very illuminating um, description of the work of uh, yourself and, and Nicholas and of his uh, institute and foundation, uh, and also the central ideas um, that frame the book. I was trying to sort of think when you were talking about this um, what uh, you both conceive are the chief obstacles in the two bookends that you take for your analysis to thinking along the lines that you recommend, which seem eminently sensible, and to implementing um, some of the uh, upward and downward devolution that you recommend, because they might be quite different in the two cases. I mean, it struck me that in the American case, or for that matter, many of the um, West European cases, despite the emergence of, of technocracy in recent times, you might simply come up against an ideological obstacle, which is a very strong ideology of democracy, thought of in a variety of different ways. And that's just a kind of powerful intellectual and cultural force, um, which might be reflected in various ways. In Britain, it occurred to me, when you were talking about meritocracy and long-term policymaking and the need to integrate different policy initiatives so that they didn't add up to nonsense, like three strikes and you're out, but we're not paying for the prisons. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we used to have in Britain something called a mandronate, which was a civil service, uh, uh, um, actually conceived in the 19th century against the background of intense corruption, and the introduction of an almost Confucian system of civil service examinations. Right. We used to have that. Um, that's been gradually reduced in significance um, over the last 30 years for a variety of reasons. Um, but it can be, the reduction has been defended on democratic grounds. In other words, we can't have these civil servants uh, in Whitehall um, vetoing or dictating or shaping policy. So that's kind of one obstacle from an ideology of democracy. A different obstacle one might think of in China is that some of the reforms that are required, such as a great rule of law, might be seen by elements in the Chinese regime, possibly even rightly, as fundamental threats to the regime itself. In other words, as things are, the, the judiciary serves the Chinese Communist Party. If the Chinese Communist Party released its hold over that, then one could have a more comprehensive unraveling. So there might be, as it were, an argument in China, this system has served us well, it's got various problems, it has to move to another stage of economic advance, but we're not going to um, experiment with the fundamental elements in it because that will be a leave in the dark. So, but my general background is, what are the obstacles to thinking in this way and how do these obstacles differ in different contexts? I'll, I'll respond briefly. Sure. And I think you, you made the point, frankly, very well. Uh, two bookends. I'll take the examples that Nathan uh, talked about, let's say, California and China. Uh, in, uh, in California, that would mean giving up for, on the part of citizens uh, some of the power to whoever they elect. Uh, the governor in California cannot uh, move taxes, cannot raise taxes, needs the approval of uh, <coughs> citizens, which he just got in an election. But if he hadn't gotten... Uh, the approval of citizens to raise taxes for the next, um, this is a seven-year, in theory, temporary tax measure. If he hadn't gotten uh, approval, you would have had in many high schools in California four-day weeks, as an example, just no money. So you, you, the, the governor, who people elect, doesn't have the power to do a lot of things because he's not granted the power. So this is your point about Whitehall, meaning there is... A, you don't want somebody in office in a place like California who is not approved by the public. But once they're, in, they're, they're approved, you let them govern uh, for the long-term uh, good of the state. On China, it's the, it's the obvious opposite. Uh, uh, property laws, uh, laws that protect the individual uh, against the state, against the party, um, against each other. Um, those things uh, don't exist yet. Uh, and the question is, will they be allowed? Uh, long term, uh, it, it's human and it's probably healthy. But as you said, uh, the, um, the government, the, the central party may, <laughs> may think it's a threat. But what's interesting in China is that they're highly aware of it. Uh, they're not uh, blind to it, the opposite. They're trying to wrestle, how do they do this? They've been studying places like Singapore and Korea and Taiwan to see how they've transitioned. So they, they actually, are, at least we've found, quite open to learning because they know that long term they can have a, uh, a population that's getting wealthier and wealthier, uh, that's more relaxed, freer, 
uh, without rights. It just won't work. Nathan? Uh, I think you put it exactly right. The resistance, it, there, there are many, uh, many, much resistance to reform on many levels, which I could talk about. But you, the democratic ideology is, and you said the right word, ideology. When George Bush uh, Jr. used to talk during the, uh, the Iraq War, um, democracy is the answer, he would always say. Democracy is the answer for the world. And it always struck me as that was similar to uh, Osama bin Laden saying, Islam is the answer. What do you mean in democracy? What do you mean Islam? As I tried to say in my comment, democracy is not just about one person, one vote. Liberal constitutional democracy is not just about elections. It's about a series of institutions, including deliberative institutions, that have, as John mentioned here, and I've talked about California, that have withered. Uh, the American founding fathers, as I alluded to, were very focused on institutions that could enlarge the public view, that didn't want rule, by, like I said, by the monarch or by the mob. And that's what's withered. And the de definition of democracy has become an ideology instead of an understanding of a set of institutions that go along with democracy. Now, uh, secondly, in America in particular, and I think in the West in general, uh, especially after the 60s and the Cultural Revolution of the 60s, leading all the way up to social media today, uh, there's an erosion, for good and bad reasons, of uh, trust in authority and in elites of any kind. Um, but in the United States and even in the radical democracy of California, we do have institutions, of, and so there's distrust of delegated authority. But in California even, radical democracy California, we have institutions of delegated authority. We have a coastal commission appointed by the governor. Obviously, we have a Supreme Court with, you know, uh, just like we have a Federal Reserve that's appointed, not elected. We have a Supreme Court appointed, not elected. California, we have a, a delegated authority to, uh, that regulates power, the University of California, and let's say the Coastal Commission. There, there's some others. These are appointed by the elected officials and, and not elected directly, precisely for the reason that the, a, a, group like, a body like the Coastal Commission regulates development on the coast. And everybody wants to develop the coast of California. Nobody wants to protect it except the people. If you want access to the beaches, that's why it was separated from, from uh, uh, electoral politics. Um, so there are instances of delegated authority when you can find that area which the public is willing to trust uh, delegated authority. Now, having said that, I think we're a much more radical place in California than we were in the 1970s when this was created. Uh, we had a conversation not that long ago with Governor Brown. Could you, who helped create the Coastal Commission in the first, first place, could you do that today? And the answer was maybe not. So there is definitely a resistance and a, on the side of suspicion of delegated authority and also on a democratic ideology that, of a Tea Party type that doesn't really understand even what the Founding Fathers talked about when they meant liberal constitutional democracy. On China, just to amplify what, what Nicholas said, uh, we have a, some, I think, pretty influential Chinese on our group. We go to China very often. Um, and I've been, my other job from doing this, I'm the global editor of the LA Times Syndicate, and I've interviewed major Chinese leaders over the years. And my reading of what's happening in China now is exactly a response uh, and even a preparation for a push towards more rule of law. Um, there is intense awareness, particularly because of Sina Weibo, um, 
and all the feedback the system gets and the polling. The Chinese Communist Party uses, is the biggest client of Gallup poll. They poll everybody. You know, what do you think on the street? What do you think in the neighborhood? What do you think in the country? And everyone knows corruption is the biggest issue. So now we have these incidents that we've seen uh, with Bo Zhilai, uh, the, the populist governor of uh, Chongqing, exposed for corruption and other nefarious things. And now, that was a few months ago, and now on the other side, uh, Wen Jiabao, the current uh, prime minister who talks about democracy and a very free market, also being exposed for corruption. Now, what's going on, what's going on here? Uh, leaks don't come from nowhere in China. Uh, the new leadership, and this is my interpretation, maybe anybody here who, who knows more can uh, correct me, but this is an interpretation of who I know and what I know. These are orchestrated campaigns precisely to respond to the corruption issue. It's not lost on the Chinese leadership that's coming into power uh, next week that if you shine the light on Bo Zhilai, you're shedding light on everybody because everybody already thinks the political elite's corrupt and run by the princelings who drive around Ferraris and uh, make money off of connections. Uh, but they didn't just want to attack the left. They wanted to uh, attack the liberal side so that the new regime can go down the center. And there's been a lot of talk of rule of law, which there was uh, 13 or 15 years ago, which is now coming back. And I'll stop with this, but I think it's very interesting. Um, in 1997, so that was thir uh, 14 years, whatever, um, the head of the National People's Congress uh, was the third uh, highest ranking guy in China, Mr. Zhao Xu. Zhao Xu was the, uh, also had been the security chief. He was a big proponent of rule of law, meaning that the People's Congress and the local People's Congresses should make laws uh, on all realms, just like we have in the West, um, uh, especially to curb corruption and especially to stop the arbitrary use of authority. Because these guys came out of the Cultural Revolution in which was a horror for China and set China back a decade and more. Uh, and it was because, and this is what they say, the rule, there was no rule of law to, const to constrain a bad emperor coming from power and doing what he wanted. So in 1997, I interviewed Zhao Xu and even asked him is uh, the key question. In your idea of rule of law, is the party above the law or is the law above the party? And he said to the gasp of his uh, handlers around, no organization or individual is above the law. Now, that was, seven, that was uh, 1997. Very unusually, uh, only um, uh, two months ago, he published a book, which, which former leaders usually don't, of his speeches and his documents, including this interview, to talk about the rule of law. And in the West, no one discusses it because the Western media is woefully uh, uh, inattentive to a lot of developments in China. But it was a huge deal in China. Corruption is the main issue. And so what we may be seeing in China uh, is a preparation for a strengthening of the Discipline Commission, which is the one that looks at corruption, a focus on corruption, but not, a folk, not one that, attacks, that uses the, the rule of law to attack the left or attack the right, but to really focus on the corruption issue. Because I think the Chinese leaders understand their legitimacy does not come from elections. It comes from performance. And corruption is eroding their authority uh, more than anything else. And uh, again, uh, it, it's not lost on them that if you expose Bo Zhilai, 
everyone thinks this is the way everybody acts. So there's more uh, coming down the road in terms of rule of law. And um, of course there are obstacles, but uh, I think something's on the move there. Sorry. That's very useful and very illuminating. I think we'll throw it open to discussion um, now, unless either of you have anything further to say. Um, We have roving mics. um, And uh, I think you were the first. Um, if you could, if you wish to, you don't have to, if you can identify yourself and just say what, to whom your question is, is mainly addressed. Uh, my name is Stephen Day. I'm presently uh, a senior associate member for, at uh, St. Anthony's and uh, I live in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, two very short questions and I apologize for the simplicity of, uh, <laughs> of the nature of both of them. But one, in terms of the Eastern model, um, I just wondered, it's developed against a backdrop of spectacular economic growth, um, and I wonder if you believe that, that what mechanisms does that Eastern model have to deal with a recession? Um, and in terms of the kind of the other end of the, the bookend, um, could I make the simple proposition that uh, perhaps neoliberalism undermined democracy? Um, and if we reverted to some kind of social market economy as a kind of German model, that that may allow, give democracy the breathing time to heal itself. And I just wondered if you had any comment on that. Did you all hear that? Was that all audible? Can I just gloss that and then you can see? I mean, one of the things which occurred to me is um, it's the case in Japan that Japan has had very low growth for the last 20-odd years. And yet the regimes, there's been no regime crisis. If there was low growth or zero growth in China now, Chinese leaders that, and that we've met and that we've talked with say there would be a major crisis. So I guess that's part of the, illustrates some of the, the issue there. If they're so crucially dependent on economic growth, and if economic growth for various reasons, um, uh, ecological and others, slows down in various parts of the world, delevering and all kinds of reasons, their problem is going to be greater, isn't it? That was the first one. And the second part of your question was? Related to the... Uh, um, as Neoliberalism, yeah. yeah. So either of you want to respond to that? Well, I was thinking the uh, neoliberalism, you could answer <laughs> best. Um, and maybe, and, and the, the other question, to, in my mind, in essence, uh, John, you, you did answer. Mm. And you know Japan well. Mm. Uh, Japan hasn't been growing, um, but it hasn't been growing from a very, very high level. So uh, people will accept, especially in a society that's highly homogeneous, where people are willing to sort of, in essence, sacrifice for society as a sort of Confucian, you know, uh, culture, Japan will be willing, and has been willing, as you say, amazingly, uh, no huge government crisis, even though very little growth. But, you know, technology there, uh, little parentheses, does help a lot. Yes. You know, meaning you can have normal GDP growth going nowhere, but technology, uh, you know, it's actually deflationary in terms of the uh, cost of a lot of things that are being consumed. And uh, new technology, in many cases, costs very, very little. Mm. So even if you have no GDP growth, your standards of living can increase. I think that's been the case mm. uh, in a place like Japan. In China, if the growth was going to, um, let's say, stop today, 
I think it would be right. I think that uh, the regime wouldn't survive. So there, I mean, maybe going back to the political question, the, the number one um, objective of the party in China is economic growth. It's not, and citizens want economic growth more, I think, than, let's say, the right to vote. That may come uh, when they get to, I don't know, Korean sense of living 20 years ago. But today, uh, mm. I mean, the Chinese government has, has no choice. Nathan? Quickly on the, on the China issue. Um, <clears throat> as China shifts towards, uh, and this is all in their five-year plans, and, and, and the one thing about uh, autocratic governance, governments is they usually do what they say. And in their five-year plans, uh, they're very focused on shifting the domestic consumption. They're very focused on the growth that's going to come from hundreds of millions of people still moving to the great megacities and all of the growth uh, that comes with that. And the growth will not maybe not be 10%, but it's going to be very high because of those reasons. I think the, the, the performance aspect the Communist Party is moving from growth alone, it'd be too far to say quality of life, but to environmental concerns and what they always talk about is uh, now social services in the cities. How do you develop, they've now uh, abolished the social net from the Maoist times that used to be associated with the workplace, and you've had this raw capitalism for all these years. Now they're trying to reestablish a system, a social welfare system, of basic health care, of basic uh, insurance and different kinds. And they're really focused on that because they now see that as an aspect of performance. So I think uh, uh, growth is no longer the only, uh, what do you call it, the only indicator of uh, performance in the minds of, the, of this leadership. And this is all spelled out in their five-year plans. They've thought about this. Um, on, uh, on neoliberalism, um, I don't disagree with you. And I, but I think the way you get there is through govern, governance reform. I mean, just take the place of, of Europe. I mean, again, we were in Berlin last week, and the mant what's the mantra of those who want to save Europe? Is that uh, capital is global, bond markets are global, but we're national economies. Uh, governance has to be regional in this case uh, if you're going to be able to respond to those market forces. If... Uh, if the European Union goes away, the bond market is still going to be there. The competitors, China, the United States, the emerging guys, are still going to be there. Uh, the global market is going to be there, but Europe is going to be fragmented. So governance, governance is, the, is the only counterweight to a, a global you know, a system run by a global system run by markets. So I guess that's the way I would answer that. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, sorry, the gentleman at the back. The, put your hand up. Thank you. Uh, Jacob Van Uxkel. I'm the founder of the, the World Future Council. We work with um, policymakers, with parliamentarians all over the world, you know, identifying good policies and helping to spread them to other countries. And the two experiences I've had, and I wonder if you've uh, looked into those. And one is the uh, divergence between human rights and democracy. I mean, we used to, one used to fight for both and thought they came together. But when you talk, for example, to the Chinese, it's quite clear that uh, the, the Chinese blogosphere shows the, shows the Chinese population are much more intolerant and nationalistic than the, than the government. And when you talk to young women in the, in the Gulf, 
UAE and in, um, in Qatar, for example, they, they look at um, how women's rights are being curtailed in those countries like Kuwait and now Egypt who are moving towards a more democratic system. And they say, you know, we certainly, we certainly don't want that. So I'm wondering, uh, I'd like to hear your comments on that. And the second point is, you know, there is uh, the joke about the person who says, well, the fact that um, one idiot has got as many votes as I have, I accept that as the price of democracy. But the fact that two idiots have got twice as many votes as I have, I mean, that goes too far. And uh, so I'm wondering about the question of, if you look at the question of educating the, um, the voters, but of course, all, especially also the, the policymakers. We did, uh, we uh, came up with a global policy action plan earlier this year, pointing to the kind of tipping point policies in various areas we felt were needed to, you know, to put the world on, a, on the right course. Everything from, you know, nuclear disarmament issues to climate issues. But the one policy suggestion which found the greatest uh, media interest was the suggestion that um, candidates for political office should have to take an ecological literacy test. And uh, perhaps voters should also have to take some kind of literacy test, or at least uh, you would grade them that the more votes, their votes would count double if they actually knew what they were voting about. Either of you want to talk to that? His favorite subject. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll let you respond on the first part, uh, which I think is very interesting. Uh, the second part, we've been thinking about it. I mean, it's, you know, politically totally incorrect, but... Uh, uh, you know, you're right, some people in theory are more qualified than others to vote because they're more knowledgeable or more engaged on the subject or more interested in the subject. So why not give them more votes than somebody who, you know, is not? Uh, it's highly undemocratic, so the idea, I think, has been... Um, it's, it's, it's not a new idea. Uh, it's, never, it's never gone very far. I think the other idea of making sure that the um, uh, people who... Uh, get elected to office have sort of certain um, sort of minimums to uh, to prove uh, that I think is maybe politically more acceptable idea and, and probably not a bad idea. So uh, you you know as opposed to just getting elected because you're popular, you w you will have had to have um, you know experience, a proven experience, uh, created whatever it could be jobs roads, uh, 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 children's centers, whatever is important for the community, and, you know, depending on what you're trying to get as a post, you, you, you should be tested on your experience and also your ability to, to run something. I think, frankly, the book uh, goes in that direction. Nathan? Uh, the, we do discuss the, all, all these things in the book. Uh, the, um, the question of voter education. In my own uh, experience, my own uh, views, uh, having been in politics in, in a radical direct democracy, California, is that it's an idealistic notion that you can educate the voters to the point that they, as I mentioned, they, they have the competence, and I don't mean the intelligence, I mean the, the information and the consideration of information and trade-offs um, to make the kind of decisions that often need to be made. I mentioned before, everybody wants to make the tough budget decisions, but they don't know anything about how the budget is put together. So the way we say in the book is devolve, involve, and decision division. So 
people need more control and involvement and participation in the areas of competence, mostly at the local, at the levels of, that, that their daily life exists in. Not because people are stupid, but people are busy with jobs and raising kids and don't focus on the exchange rates between, you know, the yen and the euro and so on. So uh, uh, the point is to get knowledge into the system so that good decisions are made in the common good. And that doesn't mean always one person, one vote on every issue. It should be one person, one vote on what people are competent for. Uh, and delegated authority to things that are beyond people's competence, not, again, not because they're stupid, not because they're ignorant. It's not the argument, oh, they're Chinese peasants, they can't vote. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things that they have ability to make judgments on. And uh, because of experience of civil rights and everything else, and no one would want to, would want to talk about voting tests uh, because people use it, land, land, you know, uh, your landowner and the slave and all those tests for voting we've had in the United States, you, that's a road that really you can't, you can't go down. So that's one way I would answer, and as uh, related to your other question, illiberal democracy. Again, it's my same point. Liberal constitutional democracy is not just about one person, one vote, and the majority rules everything. That goes back to many political philosophies, but especially the American founding fathers, protecting minority rights, protecting human rights within a system. And that involves rule of law, involves division of powers, it involves deliberate institutions, not just one person, one vote. Because clearly what you have, as you mentioned, um, in, uh, in societies, uh, certain Islamic societies, where the majority rule is against women. And you would certainly find in China, uh, if the public was allowed to have free reign, uh, it'd be a lot more nationalistic. Uh, and for all I know, uh, China and Japan might be at war now over those silly little islands uh, if you had democracy. And one of my, one of my Chinese colleagues actually said, uh, and this could well be true, if China had democracy today, Bo Lai would be the president of China. Very interesting, very interesting point. Just, uh, by the way, on the issue of plural voting or different voting for better educated or more competent people, John Stuart Mill proposed that in the 1860s. He then became an MP himself, and perhaps the experience of being an MP disillusioned him even more <laughs> radically. But, uh, uh, but I'd just like to echo this very interesting point that was made by the speaker just now, which is that um, um, democracy and human rights are distinct goals or distinct values are seen as such by many people. And what's democracy in, uh, it's very difficult to draw a universal borderline. For example, in the US, abortion has, has become an issue of rights. In this country, it's legislated. Fundamentally different. So how can you uh, kind of integrate those, those approaches generally? Um, I noticed someone in the front row here. You. Hello, my name is Peter. Um, I'm a master student uh, doing master in management, organization, and governance. Um, I have a one question. You spoke a lot about the rule of law, um, which is like um, on the rise now in China. And I'm not surprised that Chinese politics makers are interested in that because I think it's also fundamental for growth. Um, but there are also, um, yeah, in Singapore, for example, you also have rule of law, but they still cane people for graffiti and they, they kill people for smoking weed. So. I'm, I would like to uh, get your opinion on whether you think that they are also um, leaning more to human rights and um, also if that's one of your priorities of your institute. Thank you. 
Um, that's, should we take maybe, because we're coming, we have to finish at eight, I've been uh, told. Should we take a couple more questions and then take yeah. three, three in a, in a mm -hmm. row? Someone right at the back. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Gleb Shastakov. I'm an undergraduate business student and uh, the founder of an educational NGO. And my question is the following. In such countries, in such newly established democracies as Egypt, uh, how do you uh, strike a balance between meritocratic and democratic elements? In a country where there is an uneasy environment, the voters are... Uh, I'd say highly uneducated on what the consequences of some of the political initiatives are, and the government is has questionable motives in most cases. So I would like to know. I don't know. This question is not directed towards anyone specifically. Thank you. Someone else in the front here. Hi, my name is Joachim Harms. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Um, my question is to Mr. Bergrun. I was actually wondering when I heard your initiatives in California and in Europe, my feeling is that it's much more scalable what you do in California given that it's a selected state and everybody can see what you're actually trying to promote there. So wouldn't it be an idea to select a European country and trying to address the governance issues there specifically um, because I'm actually thinking that Europe is a homogeneous place in terms of the institutions you have, but it's highly heterogeneous if you think about the uh, politi political debate going on. And you, uh, if you ask the people in Germany about uh, what they think about governance, um, they are much more comfortable with that than the people in Greece, in Spain, in Italy, for example. Thank you. Well, would you like to comment on these questions now, all three? You can take the last one. Okay. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'll, I'll start with a proposal to whoever wants to be involved. Um, we, last week we had a town hall meeting in Berlin um, where we had existing politicians, former politicians, and probably future politicians, European and non-Europeans uh, there, and we had um, also people who are not in the political world at all on purpose. Uh, you can look it up. It's all public on the web. And we uh, had it in front of um, I think close to 500 mostly young people and students uh, including the Healthy School of Governance you may know it uh, and um, we were in lots of discussions what can the European construction look like uh, how do you, you know, bridge the democratic deficit how do you bridge different cultures in different countries and uh, what's the Europe narrative if there's going to be one that federates people and also what does the European construction look like meaning if it's a parliamentary system, what are the different ideas? How do you make it work? How do you get there? And um, we are thinking of doing the same thing again, meaning an open town hall, um, now in an important country that uh, seems to be a... You, know, you can argue about a lot of different countries, to your point, uh, but Europe won't work unless Germany and France cooperate. Um, and... Today, they seem to almost be drifting apart, not maybe in the media or politically, even though even there, but I think maybe in the real world. We're thinking of doing the same kind of thing in Paris uh, next year, uh, engage again politicians uh, and, and thinkers, but we're thinking of reversing things a little bit. We're thinking of asking um, 
the next generation, the generation of, uh, I mean, the generation that's really going to own Europe going forward uh, and asking uh, students uh, to come up with questions and ideas. So we're going to start forming, uh, I think, a study group and some ideas between uh, Healthy School, probably Sciences Po in Paris, and LSE uh, to um, come up with something. And the idea is, as opposed to the old guys on stage, we're going to have you on stage. So um, this is an advertisement to see if um, any of you are interested in this, um, because we'd like to engage you in this issue. But going to your point, the answer, in essence, is not a bad idea. But if you do things individual, country by country, today in Europe, it's just too slow. Uh, the whole place needs, um, let's say, reasonably uh, quick action. Uh, if one had the time, I think one should do this. And I think that there's still a good idea to do it regardless. We, uh, our institute, we have limitations to what we can do. I think we still have to look at the whole. But I think your idea is good. One should engage at the local level. And the truth is that it shouldn't be you doing it or NGOs or others. It should actually be the politicians who've been elected and the politicians who are on the outside who should engage their public, their citizens. They really haven't done it. So that's biggest, the biggest failure of, of European leaders. Quick on, uh, quickly on the Egypt question. Um, I think the danger there is a, a similar danger, speaking of China, that you had in the Cultural Revolution. In the Cultural Revolution, the battle was between Reds and experts, those who actually knew something and those who had the right political line. Um, so it eviscerated the whole meritocratic idea of people knowing what they're doing or had any expertise, even if they played the piano. You know, if they didn't have the correct political line, they were in trouble. The danger in, in Egypt uh, with, the, with the Muslim Brotherhood is that governing positions will be filled with Islamists and not with, you know, so green instead of expert, instead of red instead of expert. And I think that... Uh, uh, is a danger in Tunisia and in Egypt and across North Africa. Um, and it brings to mind a, um, um, at the same time, I have to say though, a member of our uh, uh, global group, Ahmed Zawail, is an Egyptian Nobel laureate uh, 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 in chemistry, who's trying to establish, with the full support of the government, an MIT for the Middle East, that the Middle East needs science. Uh, and the government's very cooperative with them. So I'm not sure that that danger, I mean, that is the danger, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure of the balance of forces there. But, uh, but the new government does seem to embrace this kind of science center, um, which uh, maybe is an impartial uh, answer to what you're saying. The other thing I would say about the Red Expert thing, though, I once had a conversation with, uh, with uh, Saif uh, Qaddafi, uh, Qaddafi's son, uh, why, does Egypt, why does Israel win all the wars? And he said, because Israel appoints its generals uh, because they can fight and because they're good generals. In the Arab world, the generals are appointed because they don't threaten the autocrat. Um, and so you don't want that kind of situation in Egypt if, well, if they're going to fight a war. That's not I'm saying they're going to fight a war, but I'm saying you want experts there. So I, that's the way I would answer that. On Singapore, I think Singapore uh, is evolving. Um, in terms of rule of law, it's the least corrupt place, certainly in all of Asia, and uh, probably in Transparency International and so on, it's right up at the top, because they do have uh, a very uh, strict um, uh, discipline uh, inspection uh, group that makes sure there's no corruption in government. 
because of their legitimacy also comes largely from performance. Um, on the, on the uh, issue of hu human rights and free speech, uh, I find Singapore, I don't know if people go there much or maybe some people here are from there, I find it lightening up quite a bit. Um, it used to be um, that Singapore was so strict that uh, instead of uh, female impersonators, you'd have female impersonators of female impersonators that didn't want the, that. Now they have actual female impersonators. So they're moving towards a path where they're more open culturally to the rest of the world on all of these issues of, of free speech and human rights, particularly because of the, of the influence of social media. And uh, uh, in the last election, um, the uh, People's Action Party, which is still the ruling party, still more or less a one-party rule, lost the most seats it ever lost in a parliament since it was founded when Lee Kuan Yew was the first, uh, when Lee Kuan Yew founded it. Um, mainly because of a social media campaign against, uh, against it. So I think Singapore is lightening up a little bit. Um, on the drug thing, you know, Singapore is hard on drugs because it was it, not always a shining, uh, you know, hugely successful city-state. It was an entrepot of prostitutes and drug dealers. And uh, they dealt with it harshly, uh, and there's not an issue now. So you've got to take Singapore... Uh, in its historical context, where it's been and where it's going, I think to answer that question. I make a very controversial comment, but it's a question uh, again on Singapore. I mean, each country, because of culture and all that, will have different feelings about what constitutes something bad, meaning something that should be punished. Now, Singapore may be gone too far, but I think that Singapore is beginning to, as Nathan says, lighten up. But they may be way too tight, and frankly, the government is, is suffering from it because they're losing at, well, they're not losing, but they are being really challenged at the polls. And, they, and they're beginning to look at that because they're very reactive in that sense. But let me ask you the following question. This is a really terrible question, politically 100% incorrect, okay? Um, the, what is, if, if one had to be punished, so either way, one had to be punished, um, and it, it, which is better uh, or worse? Uh, caning or going to jail, let's say in the U.S., in California, where if you spend a year in jail, the chances are pretty good that you'll come out in really bad shape mentally and physically, and probably if you're a criminal, you'll become a greater criminal, not a lesser criminal. That has been the history. So you can say, and I'm, I'm not pushing one side or the other, but it's a, it's a real question. The, the, the system, let's say in California, says, well, listen, you're bad, but you committed a crime, well, you go to jail. Uh, but the environment is so, let's say, unproductive uh, that um, it really doesn't reform. It doesn't help. It puts somebody behind bars for a while. That's it. If you look at Singapore, well, it's, it's incredibly barbaric uh, punishment. The question is, what are the long-term consequences? And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying... One should look at everything, you know, remove yourself from sort of ideology, you know, and, and look at the comparison. Uh, frankly, if luckily I don't have the, if I had to choose between the two, I'm not sure which one I would choose. Just to add real quickly that Mayor Koch, so, sorry, of, this is Mayor, Koch, Mayor Koch of New York, uh, mayor three or four times ago, actually said the same thing uh, during that, that famous caning case. 
He said, the problem you have in New York is someone does graffiti uh, all the time or taggers. You, either you put them in jail or you don't punish them. There's only two options. If you have corporal punishment, you can punish people without sending them to jail or letting them off the hook completely. So uh, just, to, just to say your point, your maybe crazy point, but it's a crazy point that the um, mayor of New York made also. agreed with. <laughs> And there's also the a, he was provocative point. He was a Democrat and he was gay. So he was yes, not, exactly. uh, you know. Yeah. He's still a Democrat and he's still gay. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're at the end now. Uh, I'd just like to remind you that copies of the book are uh, for sale um, out there. And, uh, but they're going to be, if you want them signed uh, by the authors, they're available here. So I'd like to thank our two uh, speakers tonight for a very illuminating, challenging, and refreshingly at times incorrect set of <laughs> thoughts. And um, perhaps we can all thank them together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.